Have you ever heard the sounds of the sea? Of whales and dolphins, snapping shrimp, boat noise and military sonar? Welcome to Unsonorous Seas. My name is Barry Killin, and I'm an artist from the Isle of Iona. Join me as I encounter vastness, complexity and wonder in the sounds of the seas that surround the chain of Scottish islands known as the Hebrides. This story begins with a stranded whale and takes us deep into another world of human and non-human sounds. Come listen to the sea and what it can reveal to us. Follow the story online at unsonorousseas.com. Welcome. It's my pleasure to introduce Alistair White. Alistair was born and raised on Mull and is currently a co-investigator with Glasgow University's Iona Namescape Research Project. And in addition to his academic work, Alistair is a singer, songwriter, playwright, actor and presenter. And he was named Gaelic Ambassador of the Year by the Scottish Government in 2019. So welcome, Alistair. I think the last time we met was actually in the New Village Hall in Iona a few weeks ago when you were at the beginning of your book tour for the launch of Mamesley. That's right. Uh, thanks very much for your part in that, uh, helping us organise that first day. No, it was our second day. On the, oh, it was your second tour. day, that's right. No, it was a really enjoyable evening and uh, I think it's really appropriate that you've been invited to contribute to the podcast series um, for Unsonorous Seas because Mamesley really addresses another in environmental and ecological issue, doesn't it? And through language and um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the book and also about the title in particular. Yeah, there's a real crossover in themes, I would say, between what you're doing yourself, this project... And, um, yeah, the kind of main thrust of Mimeshley, which is really about sustainability with kind of an eye on the climate emergency, but also I think I'm trying to make the point in the book about that needing to include, the conversation about that needing to include linguistic and cultural sustainability as well, particularly with a, a kind of keen eye on the Gaelic language. Mm -hmm. And I think the relationship to the sea is something that's maybe changed over the generations. So as islanders, we talk about the sea a lot. We've just had a conversation about Calmac and the ferries. And it really dominates our, especially on Iona, which is an island off the coast of Mull, which is an island off the mainland of UK, because it really impacts on whether we get our daily supplies, essential services and... With our modern mindset, I think we can look at it as a body of water that isolates us and disconnects us, whereas our relatives of previous generations very much had a, a much more intimate and sustainable relationship with it, where the sea was a way of connecting, connecting us to each other and connecting us to another world as well. I think that connection, or we're talking about connect, just thinking about the Gaelic language, going back to that point, actually, we don't have to think about it for too long to realise just how connecting 
a factor the sea was historically in our part of the world. So uh, having been brought up in Mull myself, it's not something, I, I think it's something that, it was something that I took for granted mm. in the way that if I'd lived somewhere else, if I'd grown up somewhere else, I might have seen it as an isolating factor rather than a connecting factor. But it was the kind of, it was the only thing I knew, I guess, growing up. What I was going to say, though, was historically, you don't have to think about the history of that part of the world, the Highlands and Islands and the Hebrides. You don't have to think about it long to realise how connecting a factor of the sea was when you think about that shared language and culture that we have with Ireland mm. and the Isle of Man in particular. And so if we think, I mean, you could go right back to prehistory, but the early medieval period is a big research interest of mine and um well more than that probably a bit of a hobby as well reading about that and around that and um we've got in that early medieval period really when we start to get when places that are familiar to me start to come onto the historical record they are part of this kind of kingdom which spans the north channels through Namila spans it kind of encompasses part of what is, well, the island of Ireland and um, Argyll, really, mm-hmm. in the west of Scotland. And so we've got this, uh, and it seems to be that the language, the Gaelic language developed because of that, because of the sea. And, and, and that's how they kind of, in the early medieval period, we've got Gaelic speakers in our part of, of Scotland, whereas in the kind of eastern part of Scotland and a bit further north, we have people speaking a related Celtic language, Pictish, and then a bit further to the south and east, northern Britonic, mm-hmm. so related languages, but the Gaelic or the Celtic language that's spoken in Argyll and in Mull and Iona in that area since at least well, 600 AD, I think we can say, at least as early as that was much closer to what was spoken in across the North Channel in Ireland. So we can definitely see the sea as a connecting factor in that way for for as long as we know, really. And then we get into the period of Norse influence, and that's very much driven by the sea. I think the, the kind of power that these old Norse speakers had, usually referred to as Vikings, that really comes from their as I understand it, they're, the way that they mastered technology and boat building and and sea travel. And we can then see that a bit later on with maybe a kind of lasting influence of that technology in the, the kingdom of the, the Isles and the lordship of the Isles. And I think we see the part of the world that we are most familiar with in Mull and Iona. We can see that as part of a, a really... A, much close, more closely attached to places like the Isle of Man and, and Dublin in that central medieval period before eventually becoming part of the Scotland that we know now. I think I experience it really physically when I go up to Denis, which is the highest point on, on Iona, which isn't particularly high. And Iona is often described as being like the edge of or um, at the, the periphery of. But yet when you go up, and sit at the top of Denis and look around 360 degrees. Iona's very much at the centre of a 
of a sea highway of, of what you're just describing of cultural exchange and language exchange and development and growth and it's definitely not at the edge for me it's very much at the centre and historically was at the centre as well and that language is such an intimate way to know landscape and um but it's also an intimate way to know seascape too and, and the creatures that live there and the, the stories and the myths around that. And even in the names of the islands nearby, like the Isle of Muck, which you can maybe explain a bit more about the Gaelic around around that word and where it comes from, Alistair, and round about Mullen Iona in general, I'm sure you will have come across place names and um, names of shores and areas that of the coastline that have got particular reference to sea or sea creatures. Yeah, I've got a big interest in place <laughs> names, as you know. And uh, I suppose the first thing to talk about with place names is that they're, they've got a very practical function in that they help us navigate around and get to the places that we need to, to get to. And thinking about place names and uh, that kind of seascape that you were talking about yourself there practically I suppose that's why we have so many names with that contain the Gaelic word porth for example mm -hmm. which is well it can range in size but it really refers to somewhere you can land in the boat and yeah a kind of a, a haven and, and we've got some examples in you know if we're talking about Mull Nayona uh, on the Mull side of Cullee the sound of Iona, we've got Fionla first and Jerak first. So two names, including that, containing that element that I mentioned there, Porst, probably referring to the first part of these names, probably referring to the to the colour of the, the two um, ports, if you want to use that word, to distinguish them. But certainly, yeah, a really important thing for, for people to know if that if that's called Porst X, um, or ex-porth, then you know it's, a, it's okay to head in there with the boat. And then on the other side of things, or well, I was talking about the kind of Norse influence on mm -hmm. things before there, and, and that's uh, kind of similarly, I think that's why we have so many places that take their name from the old Norse word uh, vik, which gives us kind of uig or mm -hmm. uike mm -hmm. in place names. Um, all over the highlands and islands these days so it's kind of similar function there but then you've also got place names that warn you of the dangers of the sea as well and um, well I've got a theory about the name of the island of Alva which is just off the west coast of Mull as you know and well you mentioned sea creatures and kind mm -hmm. of creatures in general there and the name of Alva I think literally or if we translated it into English, it would probably be best translated as Wolf's Island or or Wolf Island. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's a reference to literal wolves in this case. I think we're referring to wolves of the sea and I think it's a reference to these dangerous skerries and sea rocks that are abundant around the coast of Alva in particular. If you're trying to take a boat through the sound of Alva, Kula Solova, you need to know what you're doing. And actually on the kind of south and west side of the island as well. So you've got that kind of practical function of that name as well. There's a kind of, there's a, there's a, a danger 
kind of signalled by the name, but it's you've also got that human, creative, imaginative element as well, where it's actually figurative use of a, of a word that refers to, to an animal, to signify that mm-hmm. danger, and then, I suppose taking it a, a step further, you've got these, well, just again talking about the kind of human. Creative element in place naming. I'm quite interested in the way that the landscape and seascape are kind of populated, if that's the best word to use, with names that refer to the other world. Mm-hmm. And they sometimes have, sometimes signal danger in the same way, as I understand it, him at least, as uh, names like Alva do, in that you've got names like which is a kind of alternative name it seems for Kurevrechkin, so that very what a dangerous stretch of sea, uh, just to the south of Mull and Iona. But then you've got it, yeah, so it seems to be an alternative name for that. And it seems to refer to in a way to the kind of power wielded, thought to be wielded by this otherworldly figure, the Kalyach who has a few different names, depending on where you are. Echalyach Veir seems to be her name, more often than not, in Argyle. And so she's, you know, she's associated with this place, and I think it's a reference to the danger of the place, but the power of the place, and it, and it, and it is just an example of that. There are lots of stories relating to that feature with, with her using it as a kind of washing machine to clean her plaid which she always seems to <laughs> to wear for example quite a good washing machine if you need if you've got a plaid that size and then you've got that same name it seems to i think refer to the kind of dangerous stretch of sea off Rowan Kalich point off northwest mull and that's just two examples of of where the Kalich appears in place names but it's not just one story that exists about these places. There are multiple mm. stories and versions of, of stories that relate to these places. And again, that just tells us about the creative element that's involved in place naming and the fact that place names are yeah, practical on a level, but hugely imaginative and can be figurative in all sorts of ways, referring to well, real-life figures and, and otherworldly figures as well. And would occasionally the aspects of the other world be used as a caution to children as well near water or or near inland water maybe particularly i think so yeah i think it's you can see i can see that ha- how that's happened in the versions of stories that mm. i know relating to Kalich point mm. ronakalich definitely you can see the kind of cautionary element to them and actually just talking about the Kalich, there's a a wee Rhyme, I suppose, it is connected to her and the depth of one of the lochs in Mal. There's actually two lochs called Kroon Lochan, and the, the kind of wee saying goes Kroon Lochan do doing, um, and Lochas doing is and doing, Rikig Kulmule, Ma Glunian, Ach Rikig Kroon Lochan Malaysian. So in translation, that is. Kroonlochan, kind of deep, dark Kroonlochan. This is one of these freshwater lochs, inland lochs. The loch is the, the deepest um, loch in all the world. And the, this is the voice of the Kalich that we're hearing in this rhyme. She says, 
the sound of Mull, so that stretch of water between Mull and Morven, would reach my knees, but Croonlochan would reach my thighs. <laughs> so it's, I think there's definitely a caution involved there in, in terms of the depth of the freshwater, sm- small as it may be, the freshwater loch. Yeah, and telling a story in a poem or a saying form makes it much more memorable as well. As soon as it has a rhythm or a rhyme to it, then it's it's more easily remembered and more easily passed on, isn't it? I think so, absolutely. There's alliteration in that. And loch is down, yes and These words for deep and the world. That's it's actually a very rare word these days for the world that's used in that phrase, but it's deliberately picked because it, the, of the alliteration with is down you, the deepest. Uh, there's definitely, that's, that definitely helps, I think. And just carrying on from that, it's moving from place names into poetry or verse or rhyme and then into into song. And I, I wonder if you know of, of songs local to that area of Mull and Iona around the Sea of Hebrides that particularly relate to the sea. I remember hearing Nigel Burgess sing a song about a whaler returning to Mull at Akele once, but um, I wonder, there must be so, so, so many more pieces of music and, and song. It's hard to think of a song that doesn't have some sort of connection with the sea from <laughs> our part of the world. That was quite an easy task then. <laughs> but I was thinking about it and the first thing maybe to talk about is the kind of rhythm that's involved in the sea. And I think that natural rhythms well, very naturally used in song. Well, an example, and this is not from Mull, actually, although she may have spent a bit of time in Mull, from what we know about her, a, a songmaker from... Well, she was a MacLeod connected to um, Dunvegan and Skye and Harris, Mary Nian Alistair Roy. She's known typically as Mary, daughter of Alistair Roy. And she was definitely banished away from MacLeod, her homeland, for a while in the Southern Hebrides. We know that from songs she describes seeing Jura and Scarapa and, mm. and uh, Isla in some of her songs. And there's one of her songs is kind of known by its first line, typically known by its first line, and it's literally to the sound of the sea, to the sound of the ocean before him and Tev. So she's composing, we get a really clear picture of her sitting on the shore and I think using the rhythm of the sea to compose this song where she's really wishing that the sea will just, or she'll just be taken across the sea back to her, her homeland. I feel like she should have appreciated more being in the Southern Hebrides, <laughs> <laughs> but um, she definitely wanted to get back across the sea. So we've got that kind of rhythm and then we've got the rhythm of well, work songs in Gaelic are there are lots of examples of them for different tasks. And one of them is rowing, obviously. We were talking earlier on about the connecting factor and the main mode of travel being by sea and that being much easier than travel by land historically until very recently in the grand scheme of things. And so we've got songs that are composed definitely for and refer to rowing and must have helped break up long journeys and would have been you know there would have been different iterations of these songs composed for particular journeys new lines would come in and and new melodies even maybe in some cases and we can see the development of these songs you know in oral recordings of them and 
and in written recordings of them where we have when we have them. So a song from our area um, that's actually I think it's featured in the, the Abbey Museum is Le Shabbat de Gugarich and it seems to refer to some sort of journey by sea. I think the received thinking of it is that it, about it is that it's referring to that um, age of the raids, Lean and Grech, where it was a big part of it was life and a kind of accepted part of life that neighbouring peoples, clans would read particularly for cattle and that was just part of Hebridean life and Highland life for a time it very much being a cattle based economy and so we've got this song they're heading off, the lads are heading off and there's a kind of farewell to them in the sense of fare thee well, mm-hmm. I hope it goes well on this raid um, and the, the the boat is this black oaken boat is described heading it goes past egg and um, maybe they're heading for sky but you can definitely hear the rhythm in that song and I'll give you a bit of a, a taste of the, the first part of it to get a sense of that rhythm so Gomas Lantane Kilian Ukan Linye Mohuar Nehiri Leho Nehiri Leho So I think that, that rhythm carries on through the all the verses and um, also I was saying there's lots of different kind of iterations of it and different verses and different versions of it so I think the rhythms of the sea and rhythms of tasks that were done you know well rowing mm-hmm. in particular they definitely are important to song from different periods we were talking earlier on about connection mm-hmm. via sea but then when we get to, I've just been talking about the kind of lean and grech, the age of the raids, so we're talking about the late medieval period there, and then maybe early modern period up till Lachlotter, Culloden, and the kind of breaking of that system, clan system, really, at that at that time. But then in a later period, in that period of clearance and emigration, which starts earlier than than people maybe think these days, but is particularly, well, effective, for want of a better word, in that kind of 19th century period in our area. And we get the sea being referred to as very much a disconnecting Mm. element Mm. in these songs. Mm. And the phrase harsal or harantal is very common in songs of that period. And it's easy to... To understand why, if we think about people that are, you know, cleared from their homes, you know, from Mull and Iona and other places to to places like Canada and Australia and New Zealand and America. But then you've even got, I mean, a song I'm thinking of just now is a song by a, a man, Ian McFadden, John McFadden from Balavuling in Mull. The song that he was brought up in Mull and had to go to Glasgow to find work, and he worked on the old Hope Street station actually, which is 
I suppose is the new central station mm-hmm. is the latest iteration of that. Um, and he, yeah, I think he was a teenager when he came to Glasgow. He composed lots of songs about life of Gales in Glasgow, but he also composed songs about Mull and how much Mull had changed in his time in the 19th century. And one of one of the songs that I like best of his, which kind of resonates with me, is a song called Himi Mullen and Beyond Four. It's what I see Mull of the cold hills, the cold bends. And there's a kind of refrain at the end of each verse of that song. Fata voam harantal, far from me across the sea. You didn't have to be cleared to have to emigrate across oceans for that to be relevant. This is a man composing songs in Glasgow yeah. and feeling fata voam harantal, so f- yeah, far from me across the sea is the place that I, where I really want to be mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. where my heart is. I'll sing a wee bit of that song. That would be lovely. And just that last line. He me voam fate oam. He me voam brimor lan. He me mullen and bjorn for fate oam harental. Fate oam harental. So that Fatavoam Harantal line is repeated at the end of each verse. I think I remember you singing that on Iona a few weeks ago. Aye, that's yeah. right. And it was a special thing as part of that tour, actually, to have people joining in with that no. refrain after two years of singing it to myself and in, in the flat. <laughs> so connectedness and disconnectedness and your own personal connectedness to language in relation to the sea and stories of the sea and creatures of the sea. Do you have favourites? Do you have stories or songs that you remember growing up hearing or place names or words that have stayed with you or that you've rediscovered or discovered new? Yes, definitely some things I've come across in my research, which, as I said earlier on, is definitely a hobby as well as Mm -hmm. a research. And I think just because of the wealth that I know has to offer us in in a lot of ways that's definitely how I feel about Gaelic and especially local Gaelic stories and phrases in relation to whales there's a lovely onomatopoeic phrase in Gaelic for whale song hushali hushalo hushali hushalo and I was working on a a project with the band White a few years ago and we did a we covered a song, a traditional song, I think an 18th century song, called Elendoun, which is a lament for, well, it's composed by a woman from Scalpi in Entre Hebrides, and she's composing it for her fiancé who has drowned, and there are lots of different, we don't know too much about her, I don't think, um, lots of different versions of, and kind of lore surrounding this event, which is obviously a traumatic, horrific event. Well, one of the one of the things that's said about her is that she said to walk the shore for and for as long as she lived, and I don't think she lived very long after he died, but composed a song while walking along the shore every day after he died. And the sea definitely figures, well, as you'd imagine, he drowned at sea, it figures in very prominently in this song. 
And one of the lines actually refers to whales. It's Mochgan Mare Vigat Repig Vigat Yarig Asahile. And the images of whales literally ripping his body apart. It's really interesting. It's not something I've really come across in other songs. I'm not sure how how that how kind of yeah common that image is. But I think it's definitely kind of conveying that the power of the sea and what it's the the danger of it. Mm. I think that's that's at the heart of it. Anyway, when we were to go back to the our kind of arrangement of that song, I thought it would be a nice idea to f- incorporate that onomatopoeic phrase into it. So we used it as a kind of um, there were kind of two sections to arrangement and we used it in as a kind of uh, in the middle section of the song as a kind of I was kind of uh, yeah ran till the end of the song as a kind of backing vocal I suppose to get the the and Mara the whales in there in some way but I mean when a whale came ashore the actual resources that that provided you know long before whaling mm. in the early medieval period that was a a really big part of of life in our area I think and then the kind of natural balance of that was really upset by control of the seas by kind of foreign him distant powers and so you've got I think there's an account in the Argyle papers in Vereri papers about I think about 20 men in Mull or in Ulva I think being charged for this use of whale oil a whale had come ashore and they were charged per pound of oil or something for taking that kind of when it didn't belong to them whereas in the past that was all part of the kind of cycle of life of course and it monetizes something that nature gave to a local community or a small community and that's the way it was seen i think Mm. i've gone a bit off topic there, I didn't really That's mean to okay. get into That's okay, no, so it's really interesting though because it, it, it does refer back to the agency, that development of agency over the seas around the Hebrides and also it's a big part of the history as well. It wasn't just agency over land, um, it was the sea as well and the, and the resources that the sea gave local communities. I think so, I think that was in the oh, 1720s. There'll be other accounts of that. And then in the early medieval period, I think you've got things in law that kind of, depending on where a whale came ashore, mm-hmm. um, the, the local people were entitled to, you know, in, in law of that time to, you know, to have their their shade of, of what the sea had brought them. I think that's the kind of way it was seen. But in more general terms about sea and... Uh, words and phrases and stories. Well, from Iona, I like the story about the liapak, mm-hmm. the flounder. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of different versions of this, and I think it, there's versions in Tyree as well, where he's, the, the liapak is specifically associated with Columkilia, with Columba, and, well, the story as I heard it was that Columkilia was walking along the shore one day and there was a shoal of flounders swimming up the, the sound. And I think this really shows the connection between people and the animals and the kind of wider natural world where Columkilia, and it's just kind of given in a matter-of-fact way in this version of the story that I've heard, just 
has a conversation with one of these Liatbakan and he says, No catch of us with all, where are you where are you heading? Are you are you off? And the Liapak turns around and says, Oh ha, Gujara Khalam Kilyachamakasi. Certainly aren't we? We're off bandy legged Columba. So he insults Columba. Oh dear. <laughs> so the writing was on the wall for this poor Liapak. Um Kalam Kilya, who's quite an angry man in some of the tales that I've heard about him, replies and says, Well Maha Misha Kamachasach Hatusa Hausa Kamavialach. You if I'm bandy legged then you've got a crooked mouth. And that's apparently Liapakan did not have crooked mouths before, before this that. incident. <laughs> Um, you'll know that story yourself. But I like the idea of just this conversation between Gullam and the Liapak on the, on the shores of Iona. So I always think of that story when I hear the, the word Liapak mentioned. And in terms of other words and phrases, well, and going back to song, there's um, a local song, Maroon Kjartilis, which is composed by a man, Ian Machkele, and you think his name was, I think he was from Tarlosk in North mm. West Mull. And it's a love song, and he was abroad somewhere and took ill. And he's writing this song back to his love, who's from Isla. So the Ely sometimes claim it as their song as opposed to Amal's song. <laughs> That's a, an argument for another day. But the last verse that I know of, the verse that I sing at least, is um, he, I think he feels that if she's with someone else now, that's okay because. In the last line, Hatanik Lan Gun um Hatanik Trai Gun Murlan So there was no kind of low tide is always followed by high tide. And it refers to this kind of well, again the kind of natural cycles of the sea, but also a kind of it can apply much more widely than that, in that there are always gonna be other opportunities or there are plenty more Let's fish, more in, fish the sea, in the sea. Maybe in this case, the best <laughs> way to translate it. Um, and I think that same line features in one of Sorya Machilia and Sorya McLean's poems as well, actually. And there are lots of, oh, naturally, lots of words and phrases with these connections to the sea. Alistair, thank you so much. It's been really beautiful and very, very particular to where we both well, where you were brought up and, and where, where I now live. So very enjoyable for that in particular. And thank you. Thank you, Gavin. On Sonorous Seas is a story told with the voices of science, art, music and poetry. And it explores the impact of military sonar and the ecology of the seas surrounding the Hebrides. The project is supported by the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, the Scottish Association for Marine Science, Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme, and the National Museum of Scotland. On Sonorous Seas is funded through Antoper and Mull Theatre, Creative Scotland, The Space CIC, and AN Bursaries. The sounds in this podcast series have been used with kind permission of the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust and the Scottish Association for Marine Science. This podcast was produced by Fergus Hall with sound compositions by Fergus Hall.